So, guys, I'm serious about this. I'm not crazy. Somebody is trying to get inside my head. Like a whole bunch of people are trying to get inside my head. And you know what's even worse? These same people, they're trying to get inside your head. They're trying to get inside your head and control your attention. You think I'm crazy. I'm not. Actually, that is the premise of a book by Columbia law professor Timothy Wu called The Attention Merchants. And I love this subtitle, The Epic Scramble to Get Inside Our Heads. And Wu says this, he says that, and I quote, every sliver of our attention must be conquered by the attention merchants. People who are really smart, and really good at what they do, and they're not evil people. They're doing their job for the most part. They're doing the job that they've been given to do, and their job is to capture every sliver of our attention. And Wu says that we've become not homo sapiens, but what he calls homo distractus. We are humans who are perpetually distracted with what he calls ever shorter attention spans known for compulsively checking devices. So, since 2015, um, Wu says that our cell phone has basically, the motto for our cell phone is, whither thou goest, dear, I go with you. So, we treat our cell phones like an English butler, or like we're the English butler, and they're the Lord. Yes, my Lord. Yes, my lady. What do you want? What do you need? What do you need, lady? Social media, newsfeed, Netflix, whatever. And Wu says this. He says, why does this matter? Towards the end of the book, he has these really powerful lines. And he says, our very lives are at stake. Now, this guy, as far as I know, he's not a Christian. He doesn't write from any faith perspective that I can tell. He says, our very lives are at stake because when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to. Let me read that again, because that's so powerful, and that's so, like, biblically epic statement. So he says, our very lives are at stake, because when we reach the end of our days, and we all will, our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to. And then he also says, we must act to make our attention our own again, and to reclaim the ownership of the very experience of living. Like, we got to get this back, people. And that just, when I read that, when I read that book, I was like, oh man, that just like really grabs me. It really challenges me. Well, here's the thing. So in our gospel reading, here's, here we see Jesus. Um, you know, Jesus was, was not only a good teacher. He's not only our savior. He's not only our redeemer, but he's really smart. He's a really wise person, the wisest person to ever live. And he anticipated this whole problem with attention because it's, We've always struggled with this in different ways. In some ways, our age is more challenging, but everybody struggled with this in every age. And basically, what he's going to talk about in the gospel that we just heard read is two ways to live your life. There's the inattentive way, where you just sort of like let your attention go and let people control what you're thinking, and you don't even think about it. And then there's the attentive life. To bring our attention, what he's going to talk about in this, in this gospel reading is bring your attention to the one who is paying attention to you. 
your father in heaven. So he's got really good attention and he's paying attention to you. So we, because of that, we bring our attention to him and under him. So he gives us these three practices um, in the Gospel of Matthew, in your, in your bulletin. And he kind of lays them out. And this is the text we use in our Anglican churches every Ash Wednesday. This is the Gospel reading every year. And you'll notice that there's three embodied practices. So they are the embodied practices of giving to the needy and praying and fasting. Um, now, the thing I, w- I want us to know about embodied spiritual practices is that that's one of the things that I really, really appreciate about being an Anglican. I've been an Anglican for about 13 years, and I've been an Anglican priest for about eight years. And one of the things I love is that you can actually just pray with your body, not just with your head, not just with your words, but you, you pray in an embodied way. And, and I really like that about, about the Anglican tradition and other traditions in that, that same stream. So when you think of embodied practices, think of like the things that you do every day. Like the ordinary things, like maybe you like to run or maybe you like to brush your teeth. You know, that's an embodied practice. Or maybe you like to chop an onion and make some red lentil soup like I did this week. And so you're using your body to do something. And you're not just in your head, you're using your whole person. So these are embodied practices. I'm going to talk about the first one and the third one that Jesus gave just a little bit, just kind of. So we get the context, then I'm going to focus in mostly on that middle one of prayer. So the first embodied practice is giving. Now notice what Jesus says in verse 2, if you follow along in that that gospel passage printed in your bulletin, when you give to the needy, um, and then verse 3, when you give to the needy. Now, there's two ways to look at that. We could say Jesus is going, not if, but when, and you better do it. You know, but then, you know, I was thinking actually on my long two hour drive here, stuck in traffic, which was really fun. Um, but I was thinking on the way up here, it's like, I wonder if Jesus was going like, when you do it, like, I believe in you guys. I think you're going to do it because you're my followers. And so if you hang around me, you're going to do it. So you'll get this, guys. So when you do it and, and he assumes that we're going to do this. And so one of these embodied Lenten practices is to think about. Is there some way that I can use my financial resources to bless someone in some small way during the Lenten season? You know, maybe it's buying somebody a cup of coffee. Maybe it's buying something, somebody a really nice card and, and mailing it to them. Maybe it's just something really simple. But is there some embodied way that I can give to bless people? Um, and I know that you guys, every year you have a Good Friday gift, and I know that'll be unveiled soon. And so, That might be a way for some of you to give. So that's the first practice. And then the third practice, I want to jump down to the end, is the practice of fasting. So verse 16, when you fast, um, again, it's like, I assume you guys are going to do this. If you hang around me, you will start acting more like me. And so so here's the thing with fasting. It's really easy to understand. You just don't eat for a certain period of time. Or you just don't eat certain foods for a certain period of time. So you fast from sweets or you fast from... Um, really expensive coffee drinks, or you fast for maybe you skip a meal, or maybe you go for 24 hours or something, you know, according to your capacity and according to, um, it's, it's supposed to stretch us, but it's, it's really simple. But then on the other hand, fasting is really hard because once you start fasting, what does your stomach do? It starts complaining to your brain. Like, Hey, we're empty down here. I need a little attention. I need a little love. Like, 
give me something down here, please. And so you're driving around. You're, you know, the, the thing that I notice when I'm fasting is that I just noticed there's so many fast food restaurants around, like everywhere. Like even like Taco Bell, which you can get 3,000 calories for under 12 bucks and everything on the menu tastes and smells exactly the same. Even that looks good. And I'm like, man, I could use some Taco Bell right now. I remember when my sons were really into that. That looks really good. And fasting is a bodied way to say, okay, stomach, you don't control my life. You're important. That's really important. It's good to eat well and all that kind of stuff, but you are not the Lord of my life. And I'm not going to give you all my attention all the time. So you're just going to have to settle down. So one of the embodied practices that we're invited to, the church invites you into, is so there's giving and then there's fasting. So I'm giving you a couple ways like, to think about and pray about how do I want to, in an embodied way, draw closer to Jesus with the words that Jesus has given us, with the words that church give us every year. So I want to turn to this, this last one, praying. So verse 6. Um, in this passage, Jesus says, or verse 5, when you pray, you must be not like the hypocrites. And then verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So I want to break down every phrase in that little, in verse 6 there and just, and just talk about that a little bit. So Jesus says, when you pray, again, he assumes we're going to do this. Um, and I, I remember when I was um, living on Long Island, there was this really nice, gentlemanly, um, older professor who worked at Stony Brook University. He taught what, in the sciences. He, was, he told me he was an atheist, but I really liked his shed. He made this really nice shed. I said, how did you build that shed? That's really cool. He said, well, the, the most important thing is that you have to decide you want to build the shed. That's the first decision you have to make. I thought, wow, that is really true, isn't it? You know, like if you want to pray, the first thing you have to decide is, I want to pray. I want to grow in prayer. Peter Kreeft, who's a Roman Catholic writer, he says, the single most important piece of advice about prayer is one word, begin. Begin where you are. Begin, if you, even if you're bad at it. Begin if you feel ashamed about it. Begin, just, just begin. Jesus loves beginners. I love that about Jesus. He loves beginners or people who are just beginning again. He will take you at any point in that journey. So when you pray, go into your room is the next thing Jesus said. So in, in the rooms of Jesus' day, in the homes of Jesus' day, there was like a storeroom where they would store like supplies and kind of like a, like a mud room, and they would put like tools and food, and it was kind of rustic. But the thing about it is you could close the door. And so it was private, and you could often lock it. So the question that we need to ask is, where is my storeroom? Where can I get some space where I'm away? So, you know, I was thinking about this, like, um, different people, we have different challenges. So, like, if you're a young mom and you got kids, that's a little harder. Your, your storeroom is going to be very limited. So you just have to work with what you have. If you're living with a roommate at college, for instance, I mean, maybe you could change the lock and tell your roommate later that, you know, that you've changed the lock. And then I don't know what you're going to do, but you have to get creative and you have to accept the limitations that the Lord has given you in your life. And sometimes you have to think intentionally, like, where can I go to get a storeroom? 
And maybe it's, it's around people, but people you don't know. So you have some privacy or you have some time alone. So when you pray, go into your room. He says, shut the door, which simply means for us, block out distractions as much as you possibly can. So what are the practices and habits, images you look at, noises you hear that distract you and prevent you from paying attention to the Lord and his word? And what, what are the, the kind of the rituals that you get into? It's another thing about, about Anglicans. If you're, if you're new here tonight, if you're new, we have rituals, which means a way that we do things. And See, the thing is, we all have rituals. We all have rituals. Like if you watch a certain kind of TV show, that's a ritual. So like a while ago, I, I found out that I really like uh, British and Scandinavian murder mysteries. I really like them. Some of them are really well written, but they're so depressing. You know, like the, the lead character, the lead detective is always just like, if, if it's a guy, he's like a wreck. You know, he's like an alcoholic. He's just been divorced or he's separated from his wife. He just sleeps in his clothes. He's all frumpy, you know, and, and it's just, they're just kind of like nihilistic. And there's like no ultimate justice, but there's only justice on this earth. And I just had to decide that's a ritual that is not feeding my soul. It's like distracting. I am homo distractus by this. So what is it about you? What what is it that causes distractions? What do you need to shut out? And Lent is this season of 40 days where the church says, hey guys, let's be really intentional about this. Let's be really serious about this. Let's work on this together. Let's not just slide through Lent. Let's, let's practice this. Let's work at it. So when you pray, go into your room, shut the door. And the last thing is pray to your father who is in secret. Um, and I, I love this line, which Jesus repeats three times in this passage. I don't know if you notice that. So he repeats it, repeats it three times. Pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. That's really beautiful. So once you decide you're going to pray, you go into your room, you shut the door. This is what Jesus is saying. There's somebody who wants to meet with you. I mean, it's Valentine's Day, right? This is romantic, you know? This is like romantic. Like God's like, I want to see you. I want to spend time with you. I want to be there for you. Your father who sees in secret, he says, I've been waiting for you. You know, I, I got this from my daughter who said, um, so, and I never thought of it this way, but it makes a lot of sense. There's, there's friends who say, you say, or, or they might say, hey, we should get together. And then that friend goes, yeah, we should get together. And then you never get together. You know? And then there's friends who go, hey, we should get together. And your friend goes, yeah, we should get together. And you go, oh, hey, let's pull out our phones. Let's put it in a calendar right now. Let's meet. We're going to do this. We're not just going to talk about it. We're those kind of friends. And God says, I'm that kind of friend. Like, I mean it. I really want to meet you there. I'm looking for you. I, I loved you. I was looking for you before you were looking for me. And you know, this is a beautiful time, no matter what your state of life is, whether you're married or you're single. It, it's the same thing. The Lord wants to meet us in this place and take what, what the writer Henry Nouwen once said, take our deserts of loneliness 
which we all have, whether we're single or married, take our deserts of loneliness and turn them into gardens of solitude. I really like that. The desert of loneliness becomes a garden of solitude when we meet with the Lord who's there. So, a couple questions. What are the devices or vices or practices or habits that keep you, you know they keep you from drawing closer to the Lord? And especially during Lent, you know, Lent isn't 365 days out of the year for a reason, because most of us couldn't do life, the spiritual life at this pace, this level of intensity, but it's 40 days. So in these 40 days, I'm going to identify what are the things I'm going to be way more intentional, way more thoughtful, way more prayerful about what are the things that are blocking me from growing close to my heavenly father. And then the second thing I'm going to ask is what are some embodied practices that I can start doing or restart doing or just be more intentional about or more deeper about that I can start that will deepen that relationship with the Lord. And honestly, these are hard. These are not easy because we basically have to retrain not just our bodies, but our neural, net, neural networks in our brain. We have to retrain them and, and build new neural pathways in our brain which is what we do when we practice things. We literally change our brain. Um, so this Lent, I, I go back to Tim Wu's words, which, which again, really moved me um, when he says, our very lives are at stake because when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to. So what are you paying attention to? Lent is a time where the church kind of comes like a really good mother and goes, come on, guys, come on, we can do this. I, I want, I know, I expect better of you guys. You can do it because we are loved, because we are just standing in grace. But it's a time where we allow the Lord Jesus to stir us up. And, and to arouse us and to awaken us and to long for a closer relationship with him. So this Lent, how is the Lord stirring you up? How, what would you like to ask him to do? This God who loves you, the God who loves you before the foundations of the earth, the God who died for you, the God who loves you with infinite love, adopted, wants to adopt you as his child, what ways do I want to draw closer to him? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this word um, that you've given us, this stirring word, Jesus, where you, you call us to, to these embodied practices. And what a gift they are. You know us, Lord. You know our frame. You know how we're made. And you know we need these embodied practices, not only pray with our mind and our lips, but also with our bodies. And now, Lord, as we as we come and just um, receive the imposition, imposition of ashes upon our forehead, another embodied way of praying and receiving from you, Lord, I just pray that you would awaken our hearts to, to a, just a really good and a, and a growing and a, a, a Lent that draws us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.